following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Uh, Romans 9. So it's kind of uh, neat to see how I think the days kind of weave together with uh, the theme that we just sang on and talking about God's unchanging character. I've thought about that a lot this week as God's faithfulness is a big part of our text today. And tonight, I'm going to be talking about God's immutability, meaning the fact that God does not change. And you know that is a wonderful comfort to our souls, isn't it? That God does not change. Craig read from Psalm 90 about that and and uh, the group from Ironwood sang about uh, the fact that we can run to the Lord at all times and in every situation, and He is always there, He is always faithful, you know, because uh, where would we be if we couldn't trust God? Where would we be if we couldn't go to Him and know that He is the same? What if some days you had to wonder, is God cranky today? Was God in a bad mood? No, we, we know that God does not change, that He is always the same, and, um, and that His promises, His purposes, none of those things will ever fail. And so, today we want to think about that very issue. Is God a God who is faithful? Is God a God who keeps His promise? And, um, and that's a really important issue. Now, if you know Romans 9, you know that the text that we're getting into today is a text that tends to spark a lot of controversy and a lot of debate among Christians. And, and we're going to deal with all that, but, but above all else, uh, we can rest today, we, we can look at this passage and be encouraged in the fact that our God is a promise-keeping God. So let's read uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 6-13. through 13. It says there, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had, done, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. So, so this passage is built on a very important question that, that Paul poses in verse 6. The question that this whole passage is built on and it is this question here in verse 6, has God's promise failed? And of course you can see there in verse 6 that Paul answers with an emphatic no, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now, 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 us in this room, we're, for the most part, conservative Christians, and 
For us, that's probably kind of a duh statement. Well, of course God's Word doesn't fail. We believe that God is faithful. We're committed to the truthfulness of His Word. So, so why does Paul even bring up that point? Well, to, to really understand what's going on in this passage, we have to understand a little bit of the context. Because, well, to us, that might seem obvious. Of course God's Word doesn't fail. In the world of Paul and in the world of the Roman church, it certainly appeared as if God's word had failed. So remember that, that Paul and, and the Romans, they lived at the crossroads of redemptive history. Just about 25 years prior to the writing of Romans, Jesus had died on the cross and rose again. And, and after Jesus died and rose again, the gospel began to go to the nations. And, and, and so for 1,500 years, God had worked almost exclusively through the nation of Israel. But now the gospel is supposed to go that to the ends of the earth, and lots and lots of Gentiles are getting saved, that the churches are filling up with Gentiles, which is great. But on the other hand, on the other hand that the Jewish influence and the Jewish presence was waning more and more and more all the time. Most of the Jews were not going to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Quite the opposite, they were rejecting Him, and some of them were rejecting Him quite vehemently. And that was shocking. Because again, Israel was the chosen people of God. So, so what in the world is going on? We, we, we talked uh, two weeks ago, last time we were in Romans 9, uh, we saw in verses 4 and 5 that God had given them tremendous blessings. Verse 4 says of the Israelites that to them belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? So even Jesus was a Jew. They had, he was born as one of them. And so, and so they had all these privileges. And yet Romans 9 verses 1 through 3 lament the fact that the vast majority of them had rejected their own Messiah. They had not come to Him in faith. And so they had rejected that the promise of, of their Savior, and they, they had wandered away from Him. So, so God had said way back in the, book of Pen, uh, in the, back in the Pentateuch that, that He had said to Israel, you will be My people and I will be your God. But that didn't seem to be happening. And, um, and it looked as if God's promise had failed. And so the purpose of our text, and really the purpose of all of chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, is to prove and explain the assertion that Paul makes here in verse 9. That God's word, speaking there specifically of his promises to Israel, God's promises to Israel have not failed. Now, I think probably just about everyone in this room is a Gentile, so probably you don't lay awake at night worried about whether or not God's promises to Israel have failed. But, 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 but we do understand that, 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 that if God's promise to Israel could fail, well, we've got a big problem. Because think about how our faith changes if we have a God who breaks His promises. That changes how you read the Bible. And it changes... Uh, how you live your Christian life. It changes how you face the challenges of life. It changes how you prepare for eternity. If God does not keep His promises, we are all in a world of hurt. It undercuts everything. 
So, so the faithfulness of God is foundational to our faith. So, so this issue should be very important to all of us. And so Paul's first answer, first reason why he can assert that God's promise has not failed is because God never saved all of Israel. Now, um, we, we talked about this way back in chapter 2. We, we talked there about the fact that, that most Jews in Paul's day assumed that just because they had Abraham's blood in their veins, that that made them God's children. And that they were going to heaven unless they did something super bad. They were going to heaven simply because they were Abraham's descendants. And so, um, and so that was their assumption. But, but the problem with that is, is that now in the church, most of the Jews have rejected Christ. And Paul said in Romans 2 that because of that, most of the Jews are going to be condemned to hell. Now that's a problem for the Jews. So, so the question then is, well, has God's promise failed? If they're not acting as the people of God, if most of them are going to hell. And or is the problem that Paul's gospel is wrong? Is Paul preaching a counterfeit message? That, that actually Jesus is not the Messiah and the Jews are not condemned? Is Paul wrong? And so Paul responds here that the problem was not with God and the problem was not with his gospel. No, instead, the problem was with the Jewish assumption that simply being a descendant of Abraham all but guaranteed your salvation. So he says in verse 6b, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, that sounds kind of confusing. They are not all Israel who are Israel. But, but the idea that he's teaching there is, is he's distinguishing a broader group, the nation of Israel, from a special subsection of, of what he's calling here true Israelites. Verse 7 is a little bit clearer. Uh, it says uh, in a similar vein, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So, so in other words, being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't automatically guarantee that you are God's child and that you are going to heaven someday. So, so all of his physical descendants are not his spiritual children. Only some of them are the true Israel. And and I think it's helpful context for this. Turn back to chapter 2 because uh, Paul already talked about this. And it's been a long time since we were in chapter 2. So, so chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 are the background to that statement. That, that God never promised the salvation of all Israelites, that he only saves some. So it says there in chapter 2, verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is, is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So, so a little Old Testament theology, all right? Any circumcised Jew was a member of the covenant family. And there were blessings that came to every Jew by being a member of the nation and, and being part of the people of God. But what Paul is saying here is that just being a part of the covenant people didn't mean that you were saved and you were going to heaven. That instead, there needed to be a circumcision of the heart, meaning that, that you need to be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. And he said in chapter 4 that the way that we are born again is by faith. 
It's always been by faith. So Paul's point in our text is that the true children of God, of Abraham, were always a subset of his physical descendants. You know, you can read through the Old Testament, you see that pretty clearly. That most of the people of Israel did not have genuine faith. A lot of them worshipped false gods. They were rebels against God's will. And so salvation, so salvation has always been by faith, and the true Israel, Paul says, has always been those who believed. And now, following the coming of Messiah, the true Israel are those who believe specifically on Jesus and receive Him as their Messiah. Now, now, now I do need to note that this statement here in verse 6 in particular does raise an important question. So is Paul then saying that the church is the new Israel. And, um, and, I, and, and I don't believe that's what he's saying uh, because the, the true Israel is not the entire church. Right? He doesn't say that the church is the new Israel. Instead, he's really speaking here of, of the Jewish remnant within the church. That's, that's the whole focus of, of the passage. So, so you know, that factors into the whole discussion, the bigger discussion about Israel's relationship to the church. And, um, and so, when, when Jews got saved after Jesus came, they became members of the church. But what Paul here is teaching is that they still maintained an identity as a Jewish remnant. So, so for example, Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 16, and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. That's talking about the broader uh, family of God, the, 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 the church of God. But then he adds, and upon the Israel of God. So, so, so he's making a distinction there between the broader community of, of believers in the New Testament church and the Israel of God speaking there of the Jewish remnant. So, so we are one in the church, all right? So the church hasn't, but the church has not simply replaced Israel. Rather, a major theme of Romans 9-11, through 11, and we're going to talk about this a lot as we work our way through these chapters, is God's continued faithfulness, not just to the church, but to the Jewish remnant. And verses 4 and 5 said that, that all, all these promises still belong to them. And chapter 11 is going to say that someday God is going to restore the nation, bring a tremendous revival among the Jewish people. So, so Paul wants to be very clear that God is faithful. And the problem is not that God's promise had failed. Because He never promised to save every Jew. The Old Testament bears that out. The problem was that the Jews misunderstood the promise of God. Now, do we ever do that? You know, do we ever you know, accuse God? We, we go through some sort of hard experience. And, and we accuse God of breaking a promise. You know, God, you didn't answer my prayers the way you said that you would. Or you didn't give me what you should give, and you did not keep your promise to be faithful. And, and we assume oftentimes, when, when we are struggling and hurting, that God clearly must have missed something. Because I deserve better, and God promised me something better. But before you ever go there, always make sure that you rightly understand the promise of God. And if your conclusion from your particular situation is that God has failed to keep a promise, the problem is always not with God. The problem is that you have misunderstood what God said. Because God never fails. 
So Paul's first answer is that God never saved all Israel. His second answer is that God's promise has always taken priority over physical ancestry. So look at what he says in verse 8. He says, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as his descendants. Now, there's not a big difference in meaning here between verse 8 and verses 6 and 7. But, but, but once again, Paul says that physical descent never guaranteed God's blessing. No, rather, God's purpose and promise have always determined who receives the blessing of God. So, so the true heirs of, of Abraham are those Israelites whom God has drawn to himself in genuine faith and repentance. Right? It's, it's the children of the promise. Not just the children of the flesh. It's faith and repentance that determines who are God's people. So, so again, Paul's saying, God never promised to save every Jew. And, and really, there's no, there's no reason for the Jews to have drawn that conclusion. Salvation has always been by faith, based on the purpose of God. Now, the question that you might have is, well, what does that have to do with me? Because again, probably just about everyone in this room is not a Jew. We're, we're almost all Gentiles. And I doubt that anyone in this room is banking on making it to heaven someday because, you know, you got on, you know, one of those websites and figured out that, that your ancestry can be traced back to Abraham. I doubt there's any website that could take you back to Abraham, but, but, but you found Jewish blood and so you assume you're going to heaven. I doubt anyone in here is thinking that. But the reality is, is that many people in our day have a similar sense of false security. You see, you walk around Apple Valley and ask people, Are you, do you believe you're going to heaven? Well, probably most people in our town would say, yes, I believe I'm going to heaven. And, and a lot of them, if you ask them why, they're going to say, well, because I'm a Christian. I, I grew up in a Christian family. I identify as a Christian. And you know, they might say, I'm a baptized member of a Christian denomination. Now, I'm, I'm an American. I'm a patriot. I believe in God. So, of course I'm going to heaven. And so a lot of people are banking their eternity on something very similar to this you know, genetic identity that, that all these Israelites were banking on. You know, they've just claimed a title. I call myself a Christian. I believe in God. I come from a Christian family. And so I'm sure that I'm going to heaven someday. But, but God says that your family history and even your religious identity. Identifying myself as a Christian does not make me one. No, you must believe the gospel. You must be born again. That's what, again, what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. So, so, so please make sure that your faith, your hope for eternity is anchored in what the Scriptures teach about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, just your, your family history, your heritage, any of those things. Calling yourself something doesn't make you something. You can only be saved by receiving Christ. And if you have questions about that, we, we'd love to talk with you afterwards. So, so Paul has answered the accusation that his gospel makes God unfaithful. God never said he would save every Jew. No, the true heirs of the promise have always been a smaller subset of the nation who genuinely reflect the faith of Abraham. And then in the rest of the passage, 
Paul proves this with two biblical examples. And so, the first proof he gives is that God chose Isaac exclusively. So, so look at what he says again in verses 7 through 9. He says, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are the regarded as descendants. For this is the word of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, now why, does, does, why in this context does Paul bring up Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah? Well, remember that, that, that the Jews believed that, that their connection to Abraham, Abraham is our father, they, they believed that that guaranteed, all but guaranteed, their salvation. So Paul goes all the way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis to prove, to offer a simple proof that simply being an, a descendant of Abraham does not make you his child. And, and so we actually talked about Abraham and Isaac's story uh, last Sunday morning. And in particular, we, we talked about the, the fact that, that, that God promised Abraham and Sarah that, that they would become the, uh, the, the ancestors of a great nation. They get to Canaan, they wait, and they wait to have a son. And finally, they get tired of waiting, and what does Sarah do? She says, this is never going to happen so Abraham, you marry my handmaiden Hagar and have a child by Hagar. And Abraham agrees. He marries Hagar and it works. He gets a son. Ishmael is born. And Abraham is sure that he now has his heir. But, but turn to Genesis chapter 17 because there's a really important conversation between God and Abraham that, that informs our text. So Genesis chapter 17 and I want to read verses 15 through 21. So, so this is after Ishmael is born. And God and Abraham are speaking. In Genesis 17, verse 15, it says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah, for she, or for, for, but Sarah, call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now, what's fascinating about that passage is that Abraham pleads with God that he would just let Ishmael be the heir. He doesn't want to wait anymore. He doesn't want to walk by faith anymore. He just wants God to make it simple and let Ishmael be the heir. Now, if Sarah were staying there, she probably kicked him in the shin at that point. You know, but, but, but we can relate to Abraham's struggle because you know, sometimes we, we, 
We, we, we just want it to be easy. And we're willing to sacrifice God's best and trust rather than trust that God's best is good and, and just continue to wait on the Lord and lean on Him. And of course, God responds in the passage by promising to greatly bless Ishmael. And God did. However, Ishmael's descendants would not be the heirs of the promise. No, no the heir of the promise, he says very clearly, is going to come by Sarah. And he says, a year from now, she is going to have a son whom you will name Isaac. And, and so, Isaac's descendants are going to receive the promise. And, and returning to our passage, verses 7 and 9 of our text, both quote statements from God to that effect. That God's promise was exclusively to Isaac's descendants. It did not apply to just anyone who was a descendant of Abraham. Because Ishmael was not an heir of the promise. In fact, if if Paul wanted to press the point, he could have pressed it even further because the book of Genesis tells us that that after Sarah died, uh, or excuse me, uh, Abraham remarried uh, to a lady named Keturah and she had six more sons for Abraham after Sarah's death. And, and, and Abraham gave all those children very generous gifts, just like he did to Ishmael. But they were not the heirs of the promise. That only belonged to Isaac. So, hopefully we can see Paul's logic here. Does simply being a, a, a physical descendant of Abraham make you his heir? Well, obviously not. Because Abraham had seven other children who never had any connection to the Abrahamic covenant and the salvation God provided through it. So that's strong proof that that just simply being an heir of Abraham does not make you his child. But but someone might hear all that and say, well, fair enough, all right? But but there are some obvious reasons why, why God would choose Isaac over Ishmael. I mean, after all, I mean, God never told Abraham and Sarah to do this. So they went outside God's will in having Abraham marry Hagar. This was an illegitimate marriage. It it, it violated God's design for marriage and all these things. And and Hagar was an Egyptian. She was an Egyptian. So so, she was an unworthy person to be the mother of of the promise. God never said to do this. So, so, So sure, Ishmael did not receive the promise. But he wasn't a legitimate heir. Well, Paul thought you might ask that. You might have those questions. He he figured the Jews might have those questions. So he follows with a second proof which answers those challenges. And he says that God chose Jacob over Esau. So again, look at what he says in verses 10 through 13. He says, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, now, to understand this, we again need to turn back to the book of Genesis. So turn back to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, this is important background uh, to what the argument that Paul Paul is making. Uh, Genesis chapter 25, and I want to read 
verses 19 through 26. So again, Isaac is born. We're skipping ahead. Isaac's born. He gets married to Rebekah. And then it says in verse 19, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggling, struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding onto Esau's heel. So his, his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. So in God's providence, um, Rebekah, like like uh, her mother-in-law, Sarah, was also barren, and so she waited to have children. In fact, uh, waited quite a while, and so 20 years after they got married, Rebecca finally becomes pregnant, and she doesn't become, just become pregnant. She gets pregnant with twins. But, but, but he also gave Rebecca a very important revelation here about his purpose for these two boys. And God told Rebecca before they were born that only one would be the heir of, of Abraham's promise. And surprisingly, God chose the younger one instead of the older one. The younger one, Jacob, instead of Esau. And so, returning to Romans 9, what does that have to do with our text? How is Paul going to use that to make his point? Well, well I believe here what, what's going on is that uh, this story proves Paul's point for four reasons that God's promise has not failed. And so, the first reason, this is a crucial part of Paul's argument, is that Jacob's mother did not secure the promise. Now again, all right, someone might look at Paul's first argument and say that Sarah secured the promise because Sarah was a much more worthy mother than Hagar. But, but verse 10 highlights the fact that Jacob and Esau were conceived at the same time by the same mother and father. Now, that's very significant because unlike Isaac, it means that Jacob didn't have any ancestral advantage over Esau. None whatsoever. And the Jews thought that their heritage demanded God's blessing. But the fact that God chose Jacob and rejected Esau means that God is not obligated by physical ancestry to save anyone. It's not like you know, Esau is born and God has no choice but to be gracious to him. God's grace is free. And God rejected Esau even though he was the rightful heir of Abraham. So his mother did not secure the promise. Secondly, Jacob's birth order did not secure the promise. Now verse 12 highlights that fact. It says it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now it's important to recognize here that you know, 
Birth order doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. We don't, we don't worry about that much in our day. But it was a huge deal in the ancient world. Uh, I've been reading through a Chronicles of the last a month or so, and the thought has occurred to me a few times. Why in the world do some of these godly kings pick like their worst son to be the heir after them? Like, why did Solomon choose Rehoboam? Why did Hezekiah choose Manasseh? Surely he's got a kid around somewhere that's better than the one that became the heir to the throne. And the simple answer is, is that being the firstborn in, in the ancient world demanded a different kind of treatment. They, they, that was a very important issue for them. And, and so God's choice of Jacob over Esau is not just a, yeah, no big deal sort of thing. And, and we can't know uh, God's entire reasoning because God doesn't reveal it, reveal it, but he clearly wanted to emphasize that my purpose and my plans rule over everything else. And God's making a point here. Yeah, because think about the fact that, I mean, these are both children of Isaac. There, there's no reason why they both couldn't, why both Jacob and Esau couldn't be heirs of the promise. God didn't have to pick one over the other. But he picks. And he doesn't just pick, he picks the younger one to make a point. To make a point that, that it is grace that makes Jacob the heir. It is not something that he deserves. It's not something that he has a right to. It is God's kindness. But someone might reply, well, yeah, sure, all right? It's a little bit weird that God chose Jacob instead of Esau. But, but surely, the reason God chose Jacob instead of Esau is because God knew that Jacob was going to be the godlier man. And so God looked ahead and saw that Esau was going to be a troublemaker and be an ungodly man. And so instead of choosing Jacob, he, or instead of choosing Esau, he chose Jacob, who would be the godlier individual. And by the way, that's how a lot of people understand the biblical language about election. That, that all election is, 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 that when, is that God looks ahead in time and sees the character of the individual and sees that they will choose him. And so based on who they are and their character, God then elects them based on what He knows they will be and do. But Paul rejects that notion that that kind of foreknowledge is what drives the choice of Jacob over Esau. His third reason is that Jacob's character did not secure the promise. I mean, look at what he says in verse 11. He says, For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Now, now, now Paul could not be any clearer that, that God's choice of Jacob did not have anything to do with what Jacob would be or do. You know, it's not that he saw that Jacob would be a godlier man or, or that Esau would be ungodly. And frankly, Genesis bears that out. Yeah, because sure, the book of Genesis uh, highlights the fact that Esau had some problems. I mean, Esau was apparently kind of an emotional guy because he sells his birthright because he's hungry. Pretty fickle. And, and as well, uh, he marries an Egyptian woman. And so the Bible uh, is, is, well, uh, Ab or Isaac and Rebekah uh, condemn him for that. And as well, of course, he wants to kill his brother when Jacob steals the birthright. But you know what? Jacob 
stole the birthright. And if you're writing a parenting book or a, or a marriage book, you are not going to pick Jacob as an example. And Jacob was a terrible husband and father. He, plays, he ends up with four wives and he clearly plays favorites with them and is very harsh towards some of them. And he's a terrible dad. He plays favorites with his kids and turns them all against each other. You know, if, if you were to make a, a, a movie about Jacob's family, it would not be rated G. In fact, when we go through our children's curriculum, children's curriculum almost always leaves out a lot of the story of Jacob's family because it is very disturbing. Very disturbing. I mean, you, you know, the brothers are trying to kill Joseph. Judah has all sorts of mess. I mean, this family is a wreck. And so a major emphasis, not, not just for the story of Jacob and his 12 sons, but, was, but for the entire uh, story of the patriarchs, is that the patriarchs did not deserve the promise that God gave them. They were a mess. And the only reason that God was faithful to His promise is because God is faithful, not because they deserved it. His grace is everywhere in the story of the patriarchs. So if Jacob was not worthy... Then why did God choose him? Well, the fourth reason Jacob's story proves Paul's point is that God's purpose determined the promise. And Paul makes that very clear in verse 11. He says God did this before they had done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So why did God choose Jacob? Because that's what God decided to do. Because it was His choice and His purpose. Now now God, again, He could have included both of them. But He didn't. No, based solely on His own will. His own will. Verse 13 says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, Now that is a verse that shocks our system, right? I mean... God hated Esau. And, and of course, we, when, when we read a verse like that, we, I mean, our, all of our experience with hatred is sinful hatred. The only hatred that we see from, from people is, is a hatred that is, is not based in truth. It's fallen. It's sinful. It's evil. But of course, God cannot sin. God is holy. God is pure. So, so, so God's, this, this hatred, whatever it is of Esau, is not the same thing as you hating your neighbor or, you know, uh, being a racist or something like that. No, 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 we really have to understand hatred here in light of what he says about love. So, so love here in verse 13 is ultimately the idea of choice, right? God chose Jacob. And so when we hear, we read the word hate, we ought to understand that as the opposite of choose. The, the simple idea is ultimately not that God, you know, had anger and bitterness towards Esau, it's that he rejected him. That's ultimately the idea that is being communicated. And, and, and we know that because God was kind to Esau in many ways. The book of Genesis tells us that he became very wealthy himself. And, and frankly, I don't think we can conclude from this verse that, that Esau is necessarily in hell. I think there's a good possibility that, that he is in heaven. He and Jacob are reconciled towards the end of their lives and, and seem to, to work things out. But in terms of the promise, 
God rejected him and his descendants. Only Jacob's descendants became the chosen people of God. And why did God do that? Why did God do that? Well, it seems that God did it this way to make a very important point at the outset of Israel's history. He's saying to Israel, I did not choose you because you deserve it. And he talks about that a lot in the book of Deuteronomy. I didn't choose you because you were more in number or worthy or godly. He didn't didn't show them grace because of anything in them that demanded something from God. No. God is making the point that His election, His grace, His his choice is pure, unadulterated, sovereign grace. It is kindness to the fullest extent, not based on anything that we deserve. And so that's the point that He's making. Now, 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 frankly... No one can deny that and take the text seriously. And there's, I mean, Paul is very, very clear that the choice of Jacob over Esau had nothing to do with anything about the men, that it was solely based in the purposes of God. But of course, where the debate uh, starts to heat up is, is how does all of that apply to us? And specifically, how does it apply to our individual election before God? And so... And so, does this account have significance just for corporate election? So, so, you know, God chose Israel instead of all the other nations of the earth. Or, or is he making a point here about how God chooses individuals and makes them his children? And, and of course, you know, if, and that's, that's a big, I mean, it's a big source of debate among Christians is, is how God ultimately chooses who is saved. And so, you know, if... Uh, we, we tend to get fired up when we talk about these things, the, the old Calvinism versus Arminianism debate. And of course, if you're on the, on the side that, that my choice ultimately determines if I'll be saved or not, then, then you really have to go to the idea that Paul is talking about corporate election, that, that he's only speaking here to the fact of, of how God chooses people. So, so God chose Israel instead of the nations, and God chose the church instead of everyone else. But the problem with that idea is that Paul's purpose in context is to explain why certain Jews were being saved and other Jews were not, right? I mean, his whole purpose here is to say why there's only a remnant of Jews being saved and the rest of the Jews are are not being saved. And so if, if Paul's concern here is corporate election, He's only talking about God's choice of the nation. Then, 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 then Paul's argument doesn't actually solve the problem that he's trying to deal with. So, so Paul's answer is that, that because of God's purpose, it is God's purpose that determines who receives the promise, not something in them. That's his point, right? God's purpose determines who receives the promise, not the character or the qualities of the individual himself. And and as well, I think the remainder of the chapter clearly transitions to God's sovereignty, not just over the choice of Israel, but his sovereignty over the choice of individuals. Look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, I want to be very clear here that that I still must choose to believe the gospel. Right? Romans 4 says that that justification is applied by faith. So, so you can't leave out that piece of the puzzle. But Romans 9 is making the argument that the ultimate reason why I choose... So, so I got saved as a six-year-old boy. I remember sitting in my bedroom, praying with my mother, receiving Christ as my Savior. And the ultimate reason why I, why I believed the Gospel that day was not because I was so spiritual or smart. Or because my family and my church and my Christian school did such an excellent job of reaching me with the gospel. No, the ultimate reason why I made that choice is because God and His sovereign kindness and grace chose me in eternity past to be His own. Not because of anything in Kit that deserved His grace, but because God was merciful to a sinner like me. And so he gets the glory, and I get none. Now, now some of you are hearing all this, and some of you are saying, preach it, preach it, pastor. Some of you may not be happy with me right now. And, and some of you might have a lot of questions because you've never thought about this stuff. And it, and it, is, it is mind-blowing stuff, right? I remember in college when I first began to try and understand all this, it, it, it blew my mind. And so I want to emphasize that, that yes, I believe that God chooses based on nothing in me, based solely on His sovereign purpose. But, but while I believe that, it, it, that, that, that position has never been a defining issue of our church. And so from the beginning, we've, we've, we've been a church where this is not like our flag. And if you don't agree with us on this, then you're not welcome and you're kind of strange and weird and and you should kind of bug off. No, no, we want to be a church where, where we grant people some room to differ on these issues, and that's fine. At the same time, there's no way I can preach through Romans 9 and not deal with that. You can't just kind of like, well, you know, there's some stuff going on, you know, figure it out for yourself. No, I mean, the Bible is, is making an argument, and so it is my responsibility to preach the text based on what I'm confident that it is saying. And if you have questions, all right, about any of this stuff, because again, it is, it is, it is, it goes against how we naturally think of ourselves, and it goes against how we naturally think of God, to, to think of God having that sort of sovereignty over our lives, because we like to think I'm in control, I I am the one that determines my destiny. So, so if you have questions, I hope that you'll stick around because. Because Paul is going to answer most of our questions in the remainder of chapters 9 through 11. God, God knows what you're thinking. And he's going to deal with, with all of these things as we work our way through the text. Of course, always feel free to ask. I'd love to have a conversation with you about any of these things if you've got questions you want. And, and I'm sure that Pastor Tim, Dustin, other guys around church would love to have those conversations too. But for now, we don't have time to deal with every question. So, so you might have a whole list of things popping up in your head, and it's 11.15 almost, and so we can't deal with all those things. So, so, so what we need to do with the rest of our time is just kind of pull all this together into a, a take-home truth 
that you can use this week. So, so here's my summary of the message of this passage. God is faithful, therefore trust Him to fulfill every redemptive promise. And that's really the, pro- that's the point. That's the whole point of everything that's going on here, all right? Is that God is faithful. God never breaks a promise. So God will never fail you. You can trust every promise of His Word. So when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you can trust that He will never leave you or forsake you. God will never forget you. He will always do what is good. And God is especially faithful to all of His promises of redemption. So so Christian, maybe you blew it this week. Maybe you sinned against God and you're not sure if God will forgive the sin that you committed this week. But what does God say? In John 1, 1 John 1.9, 1, He says, God is faithful and just to forgive. So you have to trust that promise. You know, maybe you are in the throes of a battle with temptation. And, 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 and you, or, or maybe you're facing a trial so large that, that you aren't sure your faith can remain. And I mean, you're just, you came into church today struggling to go forward. Your faith is weak. Well, trust. Trust God when He says that He will never give you more than you can handle. And that His grace will be enough to sustain you through every issue. God always gives His children grace to endure. He will finish the process. He will bring us to glory. Now maybe heaven feels a long ways away to you today. And and the world is overwhelming you and You feel like you're never going to make it and life is hard and dark and sinful and evil. Well, trust God's promise that the kingdom of Christ is coming. It's coming. And the day is coming where where Christ's will will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. He will wipe out sin and and make all things new. And and when that day comes, and, and to that day, nothing will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So folks, God is faithful. So trust Him. Trust Him that He will fulfill every promise. Let's pray. God, thank You for for Your character and thank You that our lives are in your, your, Your sovereign, good, faithful hands. That we never have to doubt You. We never have to question You that we can rest in You. So, so Lord, we believe. We ask that You would help our unbelief. Help us to trust every promise. And God, we praise You today for Your grace in the Gospel that You save, that You draw us to Yourself, that You are good. And uh, Lord, we, we thank You for Your kindness. We thank You for the salvation that is ours in Jesus. And we look forward to the day that we will be with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.